spreading the light of liberty and holding the line against the darkness of tyranny. Always Right Radio with Bob France and The Answer. Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer, and online at alwaysright.us. Alwaysright.us. You want to check out today's top conservative news and views stories. They have been updated as of this morning. Check that out now. This is Mara Gay from The Atlantic on MSNBC. We like to pretend that our actions don't have consequences on others, but they do. And women in this country are not going to simply uh, sit back and accept this. They will do whatever they have to do uh, to exercise control over their own bodies and their own lives. They will do whatever they have to do. They don't have to accept this. We have heard a number of people in the last 72 hours on the left saying, we will not comply. We will defy the Supreme Court. What on earth does that mean? What are they willing to do? Joining us now to discuss the massive, monumental decision uh, that was handed out on Friday that completely obliterated the importance of the massive, monumental decision that was handed down by the court on Thursday uh, is Josh Hammer, opinion editor at Newsweek, research fellow with the Edmund Burke Foundation, syndicated columnist, and the host of the Josh Hammer Show podcast. Josh, good morning. Good to have you on the air here in Cleveland. How are you? I'm doing well. What a what a week. What a week. That's so great to be with you. And it's not over either. You know, we got a great decision uh, uh, yes. of, on on uh, with uh, Coach Joe Kennedy on religious liberty. We're going to talk about that too. We got to also talk about the upcoming uh, decision that's going to be made on West Virginia versus uh, uh, the United States and the United States' ability to essentially shut down uh, all of their. Um, uh, all of their uh, fossil fuel, including and especially their coal operations. We'll talk about that, too. But, Josh, obviously, it's all right now about Roe versus Wade and about Dobbs uh, versus uh, the Jackson Women's Health Center in Mississippi. Um, when you hear the left saying things like that, we will not comply. We are going to do whatever we have to do to be able to continue to get abortions. I mean, what are we talking about? Planned Parenthood just staying open and saying, scheduling appointments, bringing women in until what? Until police or uh, military forces come in and clear the place? What are we, I mean, are they willing to do that? What are they talking about? Yeah, it's a great question. It's something that I've thought about a lot over the past few days well as the rhetoric has increasingly just reached DEFCON 1 and a fever pitch of sorts. It's not I mean, it is not at all obvious what what the Biden administration what far left activists, what people mean when they say that they're not going to listen. I mean, there are there are some instances, right? So I think back, of course, to the desegregation fights with Brown versus Board in 1954 and how President Eisenhower in the late 1950s famously sent in the troops to enforce desegregation in places like Little Rock, Arkansas. I mean, you know, in theory, I guess that is the model. In theory, that it's, in theory, it means sending in federal agents. And I guess, literally speaking, what it would mean in this particular factual context would be sending in federal agents to protect a certain wing of a Planned Parenthood facility from operating. But that just defies anyone's imagination. I mean, it's not going to happen. So it's just empty talk. It's political bluster. At this point, I think they're just trying to drive out their their base this fall, which, by the way, I think they're also going to fail on because the politics of abortion do not line up with the Democratic Party nearly as much as they think it does. But from my perspective, this is really just a lot of empty talk and bluster geared up towards this fall's midterm elections. I, think. Uh, I do want to talk about the the fall elections, too, in a second here. But let's uh, let me stay on this just from this standpoint. The one thing that I I did hear 
that I'm curious of just your opinion about is they're looking at travel vouchers. The federal government talking, Kamala Harris mentioned this yesterday on CNN, or actually in response to somebody, so I don't know if she'd actually thought of it because I think she's too stupid to come up with her own ideas, but she just glommed on to what the, the interviewer, Dana Bash, said. But she said, what about the idea of the federal government paying for women to travel from places where they can't get abortions to places where they can? Apparently, neither one of them had ever heard of the Hyde Amendment. But then uh, also... Uh, in a separate interview, uh, Byron Donalds talked about the left's plan. Now, he's a Republican from Florida, but he talked about the left's plans to build clinics on federal lands, even tribal lands, where no state lays claim to those, so they can't be a state legislature banning abortion. So build clinics on federal lands and then give federal tax dollars, uh, or rather give uh, vouchers used with our tax dollars, paid for by our tax dollars, to fly women or have help them travel from states where they can't get abortion to these federal lands where they can. Is that possible, Josh? Well, it's possible to the extent that the very narrow legal question as to whether federal property, whether it's military base or Indian property, whether it's um, you know a Seminole reservation, Cherokee reservation, or whatnot, mm-hmm. it is true that the operative law on those plots of land is different than a normal part of a state. So the, 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 the reach of the state legislature, if the state legislature is seeking to limit or perhaps simply outright ban abortion, it is not obvious that if the legislature can so neatly reach a federal military base. So, so when the Pentagon is kind of issuing some of these statements saying that we, and you know, some people have been kind of botching the headlines, but when they're saying that, oh, like we're not going to listen to the state phrase, first of all, that obviously that's morally egregious. I mean, on the substantive underlying issue of abortion, but from a narrow legal perspective, they're not wrong. I mean, I haven't closely studied the question, but it is simply true that a state cannot simply dictate laws for federal military bases that are better on their state. Having said that, the broader and the more important takeaway here is that their desperation, the left's desperation to keep abortion not just safe, legal, and rare, not just to keep it uh, the way that Bill Clinton said it in nomenclature in the 1990s, but to keep it widespread, available to all and as an affirmative good, that is how they view it, it's really just satanic. I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, their reaction to this case has really caught me off guard, and I had pretty low expectations for how they would take this. The overarching thing here going on over the past 20, 30 years, I thought about this a lot over the past weekend, the left has just gotten so used to winning. They have gotten so used to winning presidential elections. They've gotten so used to winning monumental cases at the U.S. Supreme Court so that when a Republican comes out of nowhere to win the presidential election, like, like Donald Trump, they say it was stolen by the Russians. When the conservatives finally win a major U.S. Supreme Court case, they say it's illegitimate, burn all down. They've forgotten what losing looks like, and they have lost the humility to be able to accept a loss. So I think that is from a 35,000-foot altitude view. That's really what's actually going on right now. That is a really, really good point. I, I don't think they know. And, and that's why they react the way that they do. We're talking to Josh Hammer, opinion editor at Newsweek. He's uh, also the host of the Josh Hammer Show podcast. Um, that, I, I was kind of joking about this. and not joking, but just making fun of them, that one of the trending searches over the weekend on Google was how to move to Canada from the United States. They're looking it up. You know, oftentimes the celebrity class has uh, said if George Bush wins re-election, if Donald Trump wins, you know, we're moving to Canada. They never do. Uh, but now they're actually at least Googling and <laughs> trying to see if they can make travel arrangements to make that happen. And this is simply because they cannot stand losing. I think you're right. They don't know what this feels like because 
you know, it, it's hard, I think, for them to accept that perhaps there is a majority of Americans who disagree with their worldview, who disagree with their socialist fantasies, who disagree with their culture culture of death, one that they really, truly support. Uh, and uh, the idea that somebody in the United States might find fault with their thinking makes them want to leave the United States. Isn't that astounding? It really is astounding. And I think the two cases, I mean, obviously there have been these incredible religious liberty cases, too, Carson versus Macon and May, and then the Coach Kennedy case for Washington State, which was a fantastic victory for uh, First Liberty Institute, as you mentioned, which was the religious liberty nonprofit law firm where I actually used to be a counsel. Uh, so congratulations to my colleagues on that incredible win. But focusing on the other two major wins, the Dobbs abortion case and this Bruin case, this remarkable Second Amendment case out of New York, I think another thing that's worth, that's worth noting here because it's something else I've been thinking about over this past weekend, because, I mean, these are two iconic culture war issues, obviously, guns and abortion. This is kind of, you know, 1980s culture war 101, right? But one thing, because I'm a conservative, of course, and when I talk to my conservative friends, we strongly disagree with the left approach to these questions, to increase calls for gun control and to legalize and widespread abortion access. But most of my conservative friends at least understand they understand what the average median liberal progressive leaning American is thinking when he or she purports to espouse a certain policy like that. The same simply cannot be said of the other way around. Most people on the left, they do not engage with Republicans or conservatives on social media. They do not read conservative political commentary. They simply think that if you oppose gun control, you want murdered children. And, and, and if you oppose abortion, it just means that you want women popping out five kids, cooking in the kitchen all day. They're simply incapable of grasping what we actually think on these issues. And I find that a little frustrating, but it just speaks of this remarkable echo chamber that they have built from themselves, soup to nuts, from the media ecosystem to the higher education ecosystem. They literally just live in an entirely self-contained bubble. And when the institutions of our constitutional republic breach that bubble, they are humbled beyond belief. Josh, so let, let's take, even though I could go individual on each of these and would love to, collectively, this series of decisions handed down by the court, the New York gun case, uh, you know, of course, they like the idea of people actually having to go and plead with a court to explain why they feel like they need to carry a weapon for their own defense. They de- declared that to be unconstitutional, which it is. You take that, you take Roe, you take the religious liberty cases, and, and it's got the left apoplectic. So they're talking about all kinds of things that they had talked about when they uh, when, when Biden was, was cast as the role of president, too. Abolish the filibuster. Pack the court. Uh, 9, 11, 13, whatever it is you've got to do. Uh, do something. Declare the statehood of, of D.C. And, and Puerto Rico so they get four more far-left votes in the Senate every time. Um, this is their new call. This is their new, we've got to return to that and make those things happen. How likely, how possible is it that they could accomplish any of the above? Extremely unlikely. I mean, they're not going to be able to pass the court. There's, there's just no way whatsoever. I mean, obviously, this is, a, this is a 50-50 Senate. They cannot afford to lose a single vote. Joe Manchin, Kirsten Cinema are not going to vote for that. And it's entirely possible that other other red state or purple state Democrats in the U.S. Senate wouldn't go for that as well. I mean, it's not obvious to me that even someone like Raphael Warnock in Georgia would would go for that, given his you know very competitive, presumptive race this fall against Herschel Walker. So the votes simply are not there for that. The Senate also has enough institutionalists remaining. They're increasingly few and far between on the Democratic side, but someone like Joe Manchin has been around the block. He's been there for a while now. 
So the votes just simply are not there to pass the court. So I, I, I also file that under the category of just political blusters to try to drive out the votes and try to staunch the losses for this fall. Well, there you go. Then that was going to be the next question. Uh, we're talking to Josh Hammer, opinion editor at Newsweek, uh, the host of the Josh Hammer Show podcast and a lot of other titles as well. So, you know, I have to admit, I have given it some thought over the course of the last couple of days. Um, I'm worried a little bit. I, I, I kind of feel like if the elections are allowed to be free and fair, if there isn't, you know, the next subvariant or for some other reason they declare that we can't have regular elections and we got to do national voting and uh, unrequested ballots being sent and so forth, all you know, uh, vote by mail, uh, that there's going to be a red tsunami. Uh, and everybody agrees with that. But I have to say, the fire that they show because of these uh uh, because of these uh, decisions by the court, is is dare I say unprecedented? But they are so livid, they're just screaming, "Vote, vote, 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 vote!" Getting every woman out there, and I feel like when they're desperate, like they were desperate to stop Donald Trump, they'll pull any shenanigans they have to to win votes. We saw it in 2020. So, are, do we have any reason to think then that that this tsunami that we all kind of previously had thought was going to happen might be curtailed a little bit? Yeah, I, I, look, I, I mean, this Supreme Court term, and I'm a court junkie, I'm a lawyer by background, I've been following the court for a long time. Mm-hmm. This court term has been by far the most epochal, most transformative, most dynamic court term of my lifetime. And for even a hardened judicial pessimist like myself, someone who just got so accustomed, so habituated to constantly losing on major case after major case, this term is something of a wake-up call, and it really does make you wonder as to whether those of us who said that the courts were a one-way ratchet that could never be won, whether we were perhaps just a little, little mistaken. I'm not sure. That's going to be a that's going to be an occasion for a lot of kind of deep contemplation this, this summer. But, you know, looking ahead, I mean, there's, an, there's a major affirmative action case on the court next term. I mean, the, the constitutionality of race-conscious affirmative action admissions programs are, are, are going up to the court next term in, in these twin cases out of Harvard and the University of North Carolina. Mm-hmm. So we'll see. I mean, it, it's really funny. I mean, last week after that Bruin case out of New York State, that incredible Second Amendment case, and I just want to emphasize that this is the first time in the history of the Supreme Court in the Bruin case that the Supreme Court clarified that the term bear arms actually means something, that it's not just keeping arms, but also bearing arms, that meaning that you can actually, you do have an individual right to carry a firearm outside the home. It's, it's a remarkable decision, honestly. It's been so overshadowed by Dobbs. But I, I might have been a little premature in my column um, over the weekend. I said that this was Justice Thomas's kind of career-defining majority opinion. It's a magisterial 60-plus page opinion. But, you know, I predict next term, if they actually do overturn affirmative action, that Clarence Thomas would get that majority opinion as well. So we'll see if I was premature. But I, I think I speak for many conservatives when I say that I'm not quite tired of winning just quite yet. <laughs> Neither am I. And, and I'm glad you brought up Clarence Thomas. My last question for you, uh, Josh, is going to be this. You know, there was a 6-3 to three majority on Dobbs and 5-4 to four essentially on the actual, you know, uh, declaration of Roe being overturned. Why are they focusing on only one? All of their hatred has gone to Clarence Thomas, and including African-American, prominent African-Americans. Lori Lightfoot in Chicago literally said from a podium, F, and she said the word Clarence Thomas. You know, Samuel L. Jackson going ballistic with uh, with Uncle Tom Clarence or Uncle Clarence. I mean, we can we can talk about the obvious racial disparity when it comes to abortions, uh, you know, from a... Uh, 
you know, from a, a proportional standpoint, far, far more African-Americans are aborted every year, African-American babies than, than non. Um, why are they focusing so much on Clarence Thomas, and why is this so much about race when it literally is applied across the board? You know, Bob, my girlfriend asked me the exact same question last night. She asked me literally this question effectively verbatim. Justin Thomas is the greatest living American in the country. He is an American hero. Uh, I, I did not personally clerk for Justice Thomas. I've been blessed to be friends with dozens of his law clerks over the years, including the Fifth Circuit judge that I clerked for, a, my law school mentor. I mean, I, I've, I've gotten to know the Clarence Thomas clerk family very well. And what I can say about Justice Thomas, uh, I, again, I did not clerk for him personally, so I, I have limited, you know, inside information or anything. But what I can say with him, from certainly from a reasonably close outside perspective, is that going back to Anita Hill, going all the way back to what the Senate Democrats tried to pull out, Joe Biden and all of that nonsense with with the false uh, accusations of sexual harassment in the workplace in his 1991 Supreme Court confirmation hearing, all of this vitriol these defamations, what Clarence Thomas referred to in that very hearing as a quote-unquote high-tech lynching, it just continues to motivate him. It fuels his fire. But the reality is, and he basically said this actually in the documentary that came out in the year 2020, it was a great documentary entitled Created Equal. It was uh, directed by Michael Pack. I would strongly encourage listeners to check it out. It's a wonderful documentary about Justice Thomas. What he basically says in this is that he grew up dirt poor in the Jim Crow South. Dirt poor. English was not even his first language. I and mean, he's just such a remarkable story, Justice Thomas. When he was growing up and even into his adulthood, he was that as conservative Southerners, they were never the problem. The problem for his entire life has been liberals, usually white liberals, but oftentimes these black liberals like Lori Lightfoot and Samuel L. Jackson, because hell hath no fury like a liberal who sees a conservative black man, a black man who is willing to think for himself, who is willing to think outside and free himself from the proverbial plantation that the modern Democratic Party apparatus has put in place for the past 50, 60 years. And they just expect every black man and black woman in America to just march in line and to just accept the fact that they have to be good Democratic Party voters, good Al Sharpton supporters, you name it. So whether it's Clarence Thomas on the Supreme Court, whether it's Candace Owens in the political commentary arena, they just flip out. It's really disgusting. It is a transparently racist double standard. But the only silver lining here is that it just only fuels Justice Thomas and just makes him double down his convictions. He, he is the most principled man in America, and he will never waver for a second as he detects this commitment. What a phenomenal uh, overview of Justice Thomas. I really appreciate that, especially as you say you didn't click for him, but you know a lot of people who did, and uh, you have some insights there that I think are really appreciated. Josh Hammer, uh, opinion editor at Newsweek. Again, he's a research fellow at the Ambit Burke Foundation. He's a lawyer. He's a columnist, and he's the host of the Josh Hammer Show podcast. Josh, I really appreciate you coming on. Great discussion of this very important information. Hopefully we can have you back. I would love that. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, Josh.